0: Hello and welcome to The Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, the contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and on today's podcast we have as our guest Emily Cook, who is a partner in McDermott, Will & Emory in its healthcare practice. There is no better time to talk about healthcare law and the healthcare practice than now all the issues that have been raised by the pandemic, but even aside from those issues, the healthcare industry. Is a three and a half trillion dollar industry in the United States. That's over 15% of the gross domestic product. And as a comparison, the budget for the Department of Defense is only about 700 billion. So healthcare as an industry is five times the Department of Defense budget and absorbs enormous resources within the economy. There is no better person that we could have to talk about healthcare policy than Emily Cook. As I said, she's a partner in the healthcare practice at McDermott, Will & Emory. In addition to a law degree from the University of Chicago Law School, she also has a Master of Science in Public Health from the University of North Carolina, which is a degree that specializes in healthcare policy. She also worked for many years in the government in the Health Resources and Services Administration as an advisor advised hospitals and agencies within the government on a variety of issues involving reimbursement and health care policy. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you, Howard. I'm happy to be here with you today.
0: Well, t- talking about the size of this, the impact on the economy, I think tell us something about the McDermott Will health care practice. Given the importance and size of these issues, how many lawyers do you have in the health care practice at, at McDermott Will?
1: Sure, we have over 100 attorneys in our healthcare practice at McDermott. Um, and that is in addition to attorneys throughout the firm who are not specifically in our healthcare group, but do work with healthcare clients on a wide range of issues. Uh, we, we do have many attorneys, again, who specialize specifically in advising our clients in the healthcare industry or related to transactions or litigation in the healthcare sector. Um, It is very important in our view to ensure that when you are working in the healthcare space that your legal counsel does understand the very unique and often extraordinarily complex legal issues facing healthcare providers, not just today, but uh, throughout time.
0: It's really important in terms of representation. I mean, what you're saying, and I think we know from the nature of the practice that for example, antitrust issues in healthcare revolving around mergers of hospitals and other issues really require an expertise, not just in that trust law, but in healthcare law as well. And so you have within the healthcare practice, a specialist in the individual areas that are essentially double specialists in the specific area and in how it applies to healthcare as well. Uh, But let's talk for a minute about and start with the impact of, of the pandemic in terms of healthcare regulation and healthcare law, because everyone immediately goes to that and, and for the proper reasons. What I'd like to do to talk about changes in regulation is start with something very specific that I think our listeners may have experienced and that is he- and it's reshaping healthcare. And that is telemedicine. In terms of regulatory issues, what, what has the impact of the pandemic been on, 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 on telemedicine?
1: Sure, it really has been extraordinary, both at the federal level and at the individual state levels. We know from data that is already available and being analyzed that there was over a 100-fold increase in the use of telehealth services by Medicare beneficiaries just in the first few months of the pandemic. The combination of the need for patients and and really individuals across the country to shelter in place, specific local and state instructions to stay at home, to not travel, as well as the need to manage infection control and and keep vulnerable patients out of healthcare facilities where that might increase their exposure to COVID-19 really drove a need to move healthcare services where possible from being in person to via telehealth. And at the... At the federal level, we had seen significant restrictions on the use of telehealth by the Medicare program, and the federal government really pivoted immediately to expand their flexibilities to allow for the coverage and accessibility to those services to patients in their homes.
0: It's really interesting because you know telehealth, telemedicine, all kinds of telehealth uh, uh, applications, including telepsychiatry, as well as a range of other things, have been with us for well over half a century. Uh, Those who practiced in the area were constrained, various regulatory constraints. And then in a very short period of time, uh, the usage has, has just dramatically increased. And largely, it's been permitted to increase because of the changes in regulation. I mean, it's almost a case study in how regulation over a period of time held down what could have been a beneficial practice because of necessity, it is now permitted and is dramatically growing. What are some of the regulations that had to be changed uh, in order to permit uh, telemedicine to grow to the extent it has?
1: Sure, there, there were really two categories of changes that needed to be made. The first one is payment. So in order for services to actually take place in in our healthcare sector somebody needs to pay for them and historically the federal government through the Medicare program which again covers most individuals over age 65 as well as some other um Smaller populations of patients um, had resisted covering telehealth services, so the first major change that we saw was the federal government, through the Medicare program, making payment available for telehealth services. But in order for those services to be provided, they don't just need to be paid for but they need to be able to occur in a compliant manner through state licensure restrictions. And in many cases, there had been barriers to providing robust telehealth services due to the need for all 50 states to coordinate on various licensure restrictions. So prior to the pandemic, it was often very difficult for a patient sitting in one state to receive telehealth services from a practitioner who was located in another state. And that was necessary um, in response to the pandemic, either because patients were physically located somewhere other than their their normal residence and needed to be um, seen via telehealth or their practitioner might be a specialist who is in another location and what we did see was that most of the states did significantly reduce those licensure barriers to allow for that cross-state telehealth so we had a combination at the federal level of expanding payment and at the state level making the licensure restrictions much more flexible to allow those services to occur.
0: You know, it's so interesting. It's quite a story about telling one of the, one of the founders, one of the people who was present at the origin of telehealth, was was, was Michael Crichton. Uh, he he was a doctor and he was a resident at Logan Airport, a resident through Mass General Hospital, and at Logan Airport, pa- uh, patients were arriving out of planes needed health, had to go by ambulance through through the Logan Tunnel, uh, and uh, he said, "Why can't we do this differently?" And he actually wrote an initial book on this before he went on uh, to write his science fiction books. So here's a case of something that was foreseen, that went into practice, and that essentially was, was held back by the difficult regulatory regime that it turns out could be changed uh, very, very quickly. The licensure requirement, in real terms, I take it for people to see, if, if a doctor in Los Angeles or a patient at a doctor in Los Angeles at a, a telemedicine session And while you're under that doctor's care, you happen to take a trip or you move uh, to wherever, to New York or Massachusetts or Missouri or Texas, and you have another issue that you'd like to consider with the doctor in telemedicine, before the regulatory changes, unless Texas laws, as well as California laws permitted it, could not be done. But now because of the waivers, uh, it can be done. Are these changes in regulations going to now remain permanent in terms of the growth of things like telemedicine or will they have to be revisited when, when the crisis is over?
1: We have seen some changes already occur to make them permanent. Um, we do know that there is certainly an interest in continuing to utilize telehealth in a much more robust manner than occurred before the pandemic. Certainly based on the increase in use by patients, it does appear that patients like this approach to healthcare. Um, there are certainly some efficiencies to receiving care in this manner. Um, So we do anticipate that there will be some permanent changes. And again, there have already been some changes around the margins. Um, At the federal level, we do anticipate that there there will be an expansion of the Medicare coverage. And again, there already has been some expansion. And some of that, um, to be fair, was occurring before the the pandemic. And the piece of that simply increased. But we don't anticipate that it will be the full range of flexibilities that are currently available. For example, under the pandemic waivers available through the Medicare program, hospitals are currently able to treat patient homes as a department of a hospital and furnish services to patients in their homes in the same manner for billing and payment purposes that they would if the patient were physically located in the hospital. That is an example of a flexibility allowed during the pandemic that we do not anticipate will continue after the public health emergency does end. Um, Similarly, while we have seen expanded flexibilities at the state level for certain types of expedited licensure and other flexibilities to allow for that cross-state practice, we expect that there will continue to be changes and flexibilities that did not exist before the pandemic, but likely not in the same manner that we have seen during the pandemic. So we do anticipate that some of the expedited license approval, some of the um, short-form applications will likely be modified to return to a more robust review of the licensure um, and the requirements for that cross-state practice, but certainly in a way that is an expansion beyond what we saw pre-pandemic.
0: And do do individual states still have a role to play here, uh, even given the federal government's action on, on dealing with the waivers?
1: Absolutely. So the federal government, um, while they did certainly make changes to encourage states to loosen their licensure requirements for the cross-state telemedicine practice, um, the federal government did not itself um, dictate specific changes that had to occur as to that state licensure in most categories of practice. So um, we we do continue to see that licensure and regulation of medical practice continuing at the state level um, that has not shifted to a federal oversight and regulatory structure.
0: And do you anticipate that states will continue to try and exert their their full authority here uh, in terms of dealing with these licensure issues?
1: Yes, absolutely. Again, while, while we do anticipate that there will continue to be more flexibilities, we do not anticipate that the the state medical boards and other state professional licensure boards will cede control completely over the licensure oversight um, in their states.
0: Well, telemedicine is a great place to start discussing this because I think it's, it's something that people may have had experience with. It's It's easily understandable, and the issues, the regulatory issues are also... Uh, pretty clear, I think, even to those who are not practicing in the area. But the pandemic has had other effects, other regulatory effects and other regulatory challenges uh, that are somewhat more complex. What what are some of the major impacts, uh, the regulatory impacts that the pandemic has had uh, so far?
1: Sure, we've absolutely seen the pandemic highlight the significant level of oversight and the complexity of the regulatory structures over healthcare. Um, There have been hundreds of federal healthcare regulations that have been waived in response to the pandemic and they are extremely wide ranging. So everything from requirements related to obtaining patient signatures on certain documentation that were waived so that again, you're reducing that infection risk for having to have the patients in close proximity to their providers or even just touching pens, um, all the way to circumstances where we're seeing waivers to accommodate um, field hospitals and provision of healthcare in settings that one would not otherwise anticipate um, healthcare could be provided. So it, it has been an interesting exercise for many healthcare providers to identify all of the ways in which their operations may need to change or would ideally be changed to address care for patients during the pandemic, and then have to compare those to the provisions that have been waived to identify whether there are any gaps, whether there are any additional requests that need to be made, and how they're able to provide services uh, to meet the needs of both their patients and the federal regulatory bodies and the state regulatory bodies as well. Um, interestingly, we, we are working with clients now on cataloging those service changes that were made really for two reasons. One, to ensure that going forward to the extent that there are ever any allegations or accusations that they provided care in a way that was not compliant with the waivers and with the requirements um, that they are able to document their understanding and use of the waivers. But then also, because we know this is not going to be the only pandemic that ever occurs, we will likely be going through this again at some point. And it is important to understand the ways in which healthcare and healthcare delivery needed to change in response to this pandemic to make it um, faster, quicker, easier, more efficient to respond to future pandemics.
0: Well, it looks like you're going to be very busy, but we can divide this up, I think, into into some different subjects. I mean, you mentioned uh, being careful on documentation so that what's been done in the pandemic is is fully documented. I know there have been discussions uh, that everyone is looking toward robust. That's the word that's being used. Robust enforcement as uh, the regulators go over what was done during the pandemic to make sure that what was done was was, uh, consistent. With the waivers and with whatever permissions were given, do you anticipate there's going to be great sensitivity and and a great attention uh, to enforcement activities where regulatory agencies and others will go back over what's been done to question and test whether during the pandemic with regard to the acknowledged exceptions during the pandemic, the new regulations were complied with?
1: We absolutely anticipate that there will be um, robust enforcement. Um, we are hopeful that at least from the federal and state regulator perspective, that they will wait until after the dust has settled. Although I think there is an understanding that that may not occur in all instances and certainly not in cases where the federal or state Regulators do have reason to believe that there is active fraud or abuse occurring within the healthcare system. We are, however, already seeing um, active complaints being filed in connection with either what are known as Ketam cases. Those are whistleblower cases where individual citizens bring claims um, on behalf of the federal government of allegations of violations of, um, of law. Or uh, we also are already seeing some employment litigation cases that are arising as a result of the pandemic in which there are allegations against healthcare providers that they um, did not respond properly to various aspects of the pandemic. So uh, we both anticipate that there will be future um, enforcement action, but we are already seeing cases arise with allegations um, of violations of state and federal law in connection with services being delivered during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I I assume uh, documentation on the potential for whistleblower whistleblower complaints is is of course very important because uh, so people, I know people understand the context but it's important I think to be explicit about them. The whistleblower is an individual, perhaps an employee, perhaps a patient, perhaps someone else who thinks they have information that regulations were not complied with, perhaps things were billed for that should not have been billed for, and that individual by filing a whistleblower complaint first with the uh, prosecuting agencies if it's required and then can carry it on themselves. So essentially, the people who are watching this as a realistic matter are not simply those employed in the regulatory agencies, but also all those who are involved as employees or otherwise or executives in terms of the care that's being given. Cause I assume any of those individuals, if they felt there were a violation of the regulations, could file a whistleblower complaint.
1: Yes, yes, they could, and um, the complexity of our healthcare system again provides for many opportunities for allegations of noncompliance. And and again, it it has been interesting during the pandemic to see how the processes have changed and how the processes have evolved. And while Healthcare providers are very fortunate in that the federal government and state governments acted very quickly to provide them with significant flexibility to modify the way in which they have provided healthcare. Um, it was not a, a complete waiver of all requirements. So again, um, given the complexity, given the fact that there are not complete waivers, um, and given the fact that there there are concerns about the way in which healthcare is delivered and paid for. It does provide for many opportunities for, again, robust enforcement action directly from the regulators or through whistleblowers.
0: And of course, and you mentioned the phrase, you mentioned labor issues as well. I mean, you you know, during a, a crisis caused by a pandemic, which are with emergency rooms being flooded and, and new requirements and otherwise, I suppose there were real complexities in dealing with the full requirement of, of labor laws in terms of uh, hours worked and meal and rest breaks and all the other things that could also come up uh, both now and after the pandemic in terms of whether the regulations and laws were complied with.
1: Sure. I, I am not an employment attorney, but again, healthcare is it is a business in in many cases just like any other. And so while there are certainly complexities and nuances associated with the fact that they, these are healthcare providers, that, that does not uh, mean that other Considerations like employment law, like, as you mentioned, antitrust previously, um, you know, other other business operations considerations still exist as well. So it is, um, again, in 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 many ways, an extremely highly regulated industry with many complexities that are are all coming to light as a result of the pandemic Um, and keeping on top of those is is really a significant challenge and an ongoing challenge um, for healthcare providers operating in the pandemic.
0: We've been talking about waivers and regulatory requirements through through the pandemic. Let's take a break now and talk about how you may obtain MCLA credit for listening to this broadcast. And after you hear that break, we will return and continue to talk about the current impacts, the regulatory environment on healthcare.
2: The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID.
0: We're back now, continuing our discussion with Emily Cook about the impact of the pandemic and other issues in, in healthcare regulations. We've talked about waivers, we've talked about changes in the regulations, but of course, in addition to that, there were significant—whether we call them subsidies or what we call them under the CARES Act—there were significant amount of additional dollars that were given, uh, accepted by healthcare providers, but to be done under, I take it, regulations that have some ambiguity in them. Is there now going to be enforcement difficulties and, and reviews of how those dollars were spent?
1: Certainly. there There is a tremendous amount of funding that was provided by the federal government to health care providers to assist them in both funding the operational changes that we just talked about that were needed in response to the pandemic, but also to assist them in filling some of those gaps in in lost revenue that occurred as a result of the pandemic. Um, While we do like to often think of the healthcare services in the pandemic in the lens of hospital services and that you would anticipate an increase in services from healthcare providers. There are also many healthcare providers that saw significant decreases in their revenue as a result of the pandemic because their services were disrupted significantly um, as a result of, of patients staying home and certain services cannot be provided by telehealth. So we've seen um a, a real financial impact on healthcare providers, and the federal government did step in to provide some relief um, to those providers. And it um has been a, a very complex process uh for rolling out the distribution of those funds as well as understanding what those funds can be used for.
0: Have have you already seen the beginning of, of of enforcement on that? Or or is that something you're just waiting to have happen
1: we've not yet seen the beginning of enforcement but we have seen the groundwork being laid by the federal government for what the enforcement might look like the the funding that has been rolled out has been rolled out in various phases and in various different programs that all require understanding complex eligibility provisions, reporting of various financial documents. And in some cases, healthcare providers simply received the funds deposited into their bank account without any advance warning or understanding of the conditions under which they could keep those funds or use the funds. And while the federal government was doing some of this activity in an effort to provide immediate relief to healthcare providers. It has resulted in ongoing complexities for healthcare providers that have in some cases resulted in providers that received funds returning those funds to the federal government after determining that they did not meet the criteria to keep those funds, or after some period of time returning funds in whole or in part because they determined that they did not meet the the financial criteria necessary to support keeping the funds. And this is ongoing. The the funding streams um, were rolled out with various information about the requirements under which they can be used and who who can accept the funds, and followed up with a significant amount of guidance through frequently asked questions, documents, and other website postings that in some cases have changed on a daily basis and in some cases multiple times a day.
0: Can you say that again? That's really, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, when you hear, you know, we go along, it's all very interesting, but when you hear a lawyer, when you hear you saying that in this highly complex area, some of the regulations, you had to check the websites because they were changing within a day. Uh, that there's just a conflict here between speed and and regulatory understanding, but we really were watching websites on a daily basis to see how regulations would change.
1: Yes. And we still are. It is, it is very interesting because the, I think the federal government oftentimes is criticized for moving too slowly in some of these areas, but we are also now seeing what happens when they move too fast um and and we have we have staff who and we have attorneys who are reviewing the public postings about the eligibility criteria about the use of funds through the CARES Act multiple times a day and and they will often find changes within the day <laughs> to the requirements so as a healthcare provider understanding The terms and conditions under which you can accept, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars um, and then using those funds appropriately is very challenging. There are certifications that must be made to the government. There are audit requirements. There are reporting requirements. And the consequences for misusing the funds, misaccepting the funds um, could be as, as severe as penalties under the Federal False Claims Act. So it is um, a a little bit of a double edged sword or, um, you know, be be careful what you what you ask for, because these funds are often very much needed, very necessary. They were rolled out quickly, but um, they they do come with a lot of terms and conditions and monitoring requirements. It is not um, it is not free money. Um, it, It comes with many strings.
0: Well, I think, you know, for everyone listening, there's something very important here, which is, uh, first of all, what's critical is good lawyering. I mean, the difficulty of avoiding these pitfalls and winding up behind, accepting the money and then finding out you not only have to return it, but pay a penalty really requires experienced counsel to to help advise from the very beginning. But also that's true, I think, of, of anyone listening who has clients or themselves who applied for funds under, under the CARES Act and under what else might be coming, which is this inherent conflict between speed and what we can call clarity, uh, just as a broad word to govern clear regulations. There's just a conflict here. When you do things very fast, you run risks. But what you're saying and what is interesting, I think for all council and those they represent is that the risks of lack of clarity, uncertainty here are really on the client who may find, the client may find itself facing liabilities because of a risk placed on it because of the lack of clarity. Money is there, it's applied for, it's accepted. And suddenly the the client finds out that there are penalties. And uh, so we've got a a, a real conflict here in which good lawyering is really essential to minimizing and and controlling that risk. And I, I think that's an important a takeaway to everyone listening to this podcast. So we've had these these challenges in the midst of the pandemic. Going forward, this is a very broad question, I know, but I think it's an important question people are asking themselves. Many things changed because of the pandemic, because of the crisis, because of, of the obvious need to respond as quickly as possible. People have said, though, that some of the changes were, as we've talked about in telemedicine, were delayed, should have been happening all along. What do you anticipate as we go forward? I don't know how to use the word normal now, but as we go forward in a different world after the pandemic is dealt with in a way that that gives more control, that there will be permanent changes, even outside these impacts in the organization and regulation of healthcare going forward?
1: Absolutely. I I think that what we have seen is that healthcare after the pandemic is not going to look the same as healthcare before the pandemic. The pandemic has necessitated many operational changes in healthcare providers that are likely going to be permanent, whether that is because they did not require actual regulations in the first place or the underlying regulatory frameworks will be adjusted. Patients have shown that they want more efficiency, that they want flexibility, they want choice in how and where to receive their services, and with the removal of some of the barriers to telehealth to um, some of the arrangements under which services are provided in a hospital as to where, how patients access the providers that they would choose to receive services from, those will likely stick around in some form. Again, we, we don't anticipate that things will be quite as flexible as they have been um, during the public health emergency, but certainly there is a desire, it appears, from both the provider community and the patient community for additional flexibility and choice in the way in which healthcare services are delivered.
0: So what do you think in broad terms, what do you think the biggest changes will be?
1: So in addition to telehealth, I do anticipate that there will be changes in the way in which services are documented, particularly in terms of some of the federally required documentation that previously required actual patient signatures as opposed to some form of electronic approvals. Um, Periodic um, reaffirmations of certain services will likely be modified so that, again, they can either be obtained through electronic means or on a less frequent basis. I think that we will also see that some of the ways in which care was structured for prior, er- prior eras of infection control or care delivery will be modified, significantly more reliance on technology, on the fact that patients do not necessarily need to be physically present for services in the way in which they may have needed to be before various types of technology existed. Again, while we're talking about telehealth um, fairly broadly, there are a significant range of services that we're now seeing be provided via some form of technology. So in addition to what you might think of in terms of telehealth, many of the listeners may have accessed during the pandemic or even before where you're accessing services through an app where you may be interacting face-to-face with um, a practitioner in a way that looks like, um, you know, some form of FaceTime or other real-time audio visual communication. There are also a wide range of services that are being utilized such as remote patient monitoring or other um, technologies that allow for patients to conduct their own laboratory services in their home um, in ways that don't require that they go in to see an actual provider. Um, So I do think that we'll see just increasing reliance on those technologies, both because there is a desire, but also because we're seeing, quite frankly, the growth in those technologies as well. So the, the fact that more of them are being developed and more of them exist, um, I do believe that more of them will be used and more of them will be covered.
0: No, know that's really important in terms of how people live their daily lives. I mean, uh, what people are looking at and what you're talking about is, you know, almost all vital signs can now be monitored from home. I mean, you, there are elect- electronic stethoscopes there are collars that can be put that transmit again over the internet what blood pressure is oxygen levels can be done at home temperature can certainly be taken at home so basically to the extent people are going into medical offices uh, to do regular checkups uh, focusing on vital signs even even if the office visit is necessary an enormous amount of the data uh, can be done through uh, devices that are available for the home and then Transmitted wirelessly and kept in databases, um, moving forward. And I take it you, you think that that's going to be a major change in, in how healthcare is done in the country.
1: Certainly, and I think that one of the interesting corollaries coming out of some of this increased adoption of telehealth is simply the the physical space in which healthcare is delivered as well. Certainly, to the extent that more of the care is being delivered through telehealth or to patients in their their home through various other Mechanisms, um, you know, the way in which offices and hospitals are configured will certainly change as well, and that I think is is going to be interesting. Uh, we've we've already seen some significant changes in what what is a hospital in recent years. As healthcare was already moving from an inpatient setting with patients staying overnight in the hospital for multiple days to more and more services being provided on an outpatient basis, we certainly saw a shift in in what hospitals look like with decreasing sizes of inpatient units and decreasing sizes of, of hospitals themselves. The, the move towards having many more outlying satellite locations of a hospital to provide outpatient services, for example. And now, certainly with the services moving more into the patient home, we may see the, the hospital of the future looking very different than what it looks like today. So rather than a large a large single building, um, that many folks imagine in their mind, when they think of a hospital, um, it may become a more, a more diffuse type of operation with, um, many more smaller facilities located across a larger geographic area.
0: Tremendously important concept. And it's not only, and just so real to think about it in the healthcare area, but of course, we're seeing the same thing in terms of real estate usage. Uh, in retail shopping that's permanently changing. It was accelerated by the pandemic. Seeing it even in law offices, no, don't have to comment on McDermott Will's plans, but we know that law offices are, are having a dramatically reduced, uh, need for, for space. And now we're seeing it in, for example, medical office buildings that, that had doctor's offices where people regularly came and now so much not being done there, but especially the reconfiguration of the hospital. I mean, what you're talking about is not simply changing the usage, of existing hospitals. But if you were building a new hospital, you would build it very differently today than some of the either the best hospitals that now exist, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's been very interesting for me as I've been reviewing some of the, the changes in the waivers and the questions that have come into the government, in the course of the pandemic um, to think about what those questions mean in terms of the actual care setting about which they are being asked. So one of the questions that had been asked of the government that I found particularly fascinating had to do with telehealth, but telehealth arrangements within the physical building of a hospital. So what does it look like from a coverage and reimbursement perspective when you have a patient in one physical location in a hospital building and the physician may be in another physical location within the building but not in the same room with the patient. Is that a telehealth visit? Is that an in-person visit? Um, what is that when you're at the same address but not in the same physical space? And, and those are the questions that um, are really coming out of this that they give you an idea of where healthcare is going in the future.
0: It's such an interesting discussion in those terms because, again, we're seeing it. You know, everyone said people will, will work, at, work at home and, and for a while, and then people got used to it. And, and then everyone is seeing real effects that weren't fully predicted. For example, uh, the high tech uh, businesses based not only in Silicon Valley but elsewhere, California, United States, are now adjusting wage scales to people who move from expensive areas like the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, to the Midwest and go to a smaller town, and they're finding out they may work at home, but but pay scales have been adjusted. So we're talking about the adjustments that are taking place across all industries uh, because of of what is occurring. Does this also in terms of, of the health industry? It, it impacts insurance companies. For example, companies that that focus on Medicare Advantage programs, uh, they're going to be looking at this very differently in terms of how they deal financially almost with requiring uh, 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 what we're broadly calling telehealth, but as you said, it encompasses more than that. They're gonna be taking steps to deal with their cost structure in terms of how they develop the very popular uh, managed care and Medicare programs.
1: Sure, absolutely. While I work less with managed care providers, um, we we certainly do see increased flexibilities in the, the commercial space as well as in the government managed care space to structure various types of value-based programs, various types of incentive programs. And and that has been very interesting as well during the pandemic. Um, Again, I think some of it was occurring already. Um, The pandemic has simply accelerated some of the desire to leverage that technology for various value-based programs or demonstration models to see how much money is actually saved, what reimbursement models are best reflective of this new healthcare environment where there is perhaps less brick and mortar and more technology, does that save costs? Does that reduce costs? Does that change patient care behavior in a way that um, actually meaningfully impacts the current reimbursement models?
0: Yeah, and you may also be familiar with medical schools, but my friends who teach in medical schools and develop medical curriculums now tell me that there's very serious looks at the entire medical curriculum in terms of uh, how doctors are trained in, in the, both in the new technologies and how to deal with practice and, 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 and how to deal with these issues, so the entire everyone who lives in the industry, so to speak, it gets affected uh, uh, by these changes, uh, and, and those are the kind of things we you know we have to look forward to, and we've been talking about what the impact will be on, on healthcare news in healthcare and change of regulations, but as important as healthcare is, there is more news. On a daily basis than simply in healthcare, and the Daily Journal does cover the legal news extensively. We'll now take another break to hear about some of the stories the Daily Journal, in addition to what we've been talking about, the Daily Journal is covering.
2: The weekly brief is brought to you by the Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of October nineteenth. The California Supreme Court said it will review an appellate ruling on an alleged violation of the Voting Rights Act. In July, the Second District Court of Appeal overturned a ruling that said at-large voting diluted Latino votes. At issue is whether it disincluded minority voices and resulted in a low number of non-white candidates taking office. The state Supreme Court ordered attorneys in the case to file briefs addressing what a plaintiff must prove to establish vote dilution under the California Voting Rights Act. Contra Costa District Attorney Diana Becton asked a federal judge to dismiss a lawsuit claiming Becton discriminated against prosecutors for their age and gender. Five prosecutors in Beckton's office brought the suit against her, claiming she demoted them and denied opportunities to them. When Beckton took the office, she reassigned the attorneys to new jobs. They claimed they were replaced by less experienced male prosecutors who now supervise more seasoned female attorneys. Beckton said their argument is weak and asked Judge Joseph C. Sparrow to dismiss the suit. The motion is scheduled to be heard on December 4th. As the judicial system continues to grapple with the long-term effect of the pandemic on trials, some attorneys are worried about fairness with remote juries in use. The problems? Attention span, appeals, and shutting out low-income jurors. Cooley's litigation chair, Michael Adanasio, likened the situation to what's happening in schools. In many cases, despite having technology supplied, students without stable online access are falling behind. He said the same thing could prevent low-income jurors from engaging with trials, which could lead to constitutional challenges down the road. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com
0: articles. We're back now after hearing about other, other areas of the Daily Journal And I do want to add, you do know there's extensive, you should know, there's extensive writing in The Daily Journal on all of these health issues. Uh, And if you're a subscriber to The Daily Journal, uh, there is a search function. You can go back and read all the previous uh, articles and columns, news stories and columns. You can search, you can archive, you can use them for research. Uh, And as we're learning in this podcast, uh, when we hear about regulations changing within a day, Uh, that uh, keeping up to date in these areas is vital for the practice of law. And we're also learning that the nature of the changes don't just affect one area. Healthcare is being affected, but so is every other area in the same kind of way. We've talked about the impact on real estate, Uh, law firms are being affected, and there's never been a time when it's more important to be current in the changes in the law and the legal culture. And there's no better way to do it, I think. Than to, than to check with the Daily Journal on a daily basis and see what is happening. So tell me about what would you advise? We often have people listening, Emily, thinking of moving into the healthcare area. I believe it or not, I've had a lot of comments from people thinking of becoming a lawyer uh, and what should they do. Is there anything? I know you've got the Master of Science degree in Public Health from the University of North Carolina. But for someone who wanted to work in this area, already a member of the bar, or someone who wants to work in the area as a lawyer, is there anything special that people should focus on in terms of preparation and knowledge uh, to feel comfortable uh, working in the area?
1: Sure. Everyone I know who works in the healthcare space has had a slightly different path to get there. So I don't know that there is one right answer to this question. But I will say, in my own experience, I rely on a daily basis on the knowledge I gained through my work in public health graduate school, as well as through the federal government um, that exposed me to actual healthcare providers and actual healthcare operations. I've been very fortunate that my work prior to becoming an attorney allowed me to have exposure to day-to-day healthcare operations, to experience what it is like to participate in a healthcare accreditation survey, for example, um, or to manage grant funding for healthcare providers, to shadow healthcare providers, going about their business on a day-to-day basis to have that exposure to what it means to balance the regulations, to balance the laws with delivering actual patient care. And it is, I think, critical to understand when you are working as a healthcare attorney that you are not providing legal advice in a vacuum, that there are actual patients, there are actual people's lives that are impacted by the advice that you're giving. Certainly that is applicable across many areas of law, um, but in the healthcare setting, I think because so much of it um, in the regulatory work, does tend to view healthcare as a business, it does tend to come from the perspective of improper actions and ways in which the state and federal governments believe they need to be regulated, that um, I, I find it critically important to take a step back and think about what this looks like on the ground. What does the advice that I'm giving mean to the individuals who are providing direct patient care services?
0: Yeah, that is so decent and important a perspective. I will say a friend of mine who was once a senior official in the federal government uh, told me he thought when he went over some of the decisions that had been made that there ought to be a rule that before major decisions are made, there should be a presentation on the screen of, of individuals, 20, 40, however many, with statements that say because of what you do, this is how this individual is going to be impacted. and And to bring the daily experience of the impact in, on the decision maker and, and, and not just have it be a, a, a theoretical exercise. And so what you're saying is, is tremendously important. And I raised it because what's going on in the legal profession, the legal profession itself is going through changes. And what we've heard from you and what we know is that healthcare practice is a growing area of law. I mean, you are you, your practice is growing, I take it, given what's everything that's, everything that's going on.
1: Yes, absolutely. It, it has been very interesting during the pandemic because the regular, I'll call it regular, although every day is different, but my regular day-to-day work did not slow down. My non-pandemic focused work has been just as busy as ever. But on top of that, I have had the overlay of all of the pandemic related changes and need for our clients to receive legal advice in a rapidly changing environment. So the past several months have been um, quite frankly exhausting, but um, it really does highlight how important healthcare is in our country, um, how it is growing and and how it will continue to be an area of law that is of of vital importance. And um, it's not going anywhere anytime soon.
0: (laughs) No, no, that's for sure. But, and of course, some of the highly technical things we read about what you've spoken about, I wanted to ask, you talked about different kinds of, of hospitals uh, framed, d- d- uh, framed differently and how they will be used, but uh, there also is a consolidation going on among uh, among uh, hospital organizations. Uh, essentially, they're getting bigger, they're joining together to bring efficiencies. Uh, will that continue?
1: I certainly think that it will. It, it is very interesting. Again, healthcare while a, a critical service, um, it is also a business. Um, and we do see that it, it responds very much as, as other businesses do to economic forces. And we do see a lot of consolidation and changes in the way in which healthcare is delivered. I, I do think that that will continue. Um, you know there are many regulations in place that make it challenging for healthcare um, providers to consolidate, um, and so those are many things that I work with on a daily basis. Um, when there is healthcare consolidation, what can you consolidate and what can't you consolidate? What continues to be considered a separate business operation, even if it is owned by the same legal entity and is therefore regulated separately, and and, and what can be combined? So it is very interesting. Um, to see that consolidation happening within the framework of our state and federal regulatory structures, which do not necessarily view the licensed entity or the entity providing healthcare services in the same way that a, a corporate analysis or a, a tax analysis might view them.
0: But when you say it, it's a business, I mean, some one response to that is saying it's a business, talking about you know profit, profit and loss. But more important is the concept that it's a business is the costs must make sense i mean whether it's a for-profit enterprise or a non-profit enterprise you can't lose money consistently over time and so the balance of how what you need to do what you should do and how much it costs, is something that that's that's present everywhere it's especially present and i I do want to wind up by asking asking you another broad question on this i mentioned that over 15 percent of gdp uh is spent on health care That is a far larger percentage of GDP than in any other major industrialized country. The normal percentages across the world are in many cases half of that, sometimes 8 or 9 percent, but not in double digits. So that as as a percentage of overall uh, GDP in the United States, we spend a significant amount more on health care than other countries do. I don't want to get in the discussion of how, how the results compare, just on the matter of cost. So given that, and given the fact that there clearly in one form or another will be political pressure to expand availability of, of health care, uh, to make expenditures that are necessary to deal with the inequality of access to health care, do you see cost pressures coming in terms of government reimbursement and other things that, that all providers now have to plan for and be aware of?
1: Yes, absolutely. We we have seen the federal government through the programs in which it is the payer. So, for example, the Medicare program be very focused on not just costs, but efficiency. So we have seen increased use of what's known as their demonstration authority to implement various forms of alternative and value-based payment models that are intended to shift what has historically been a fee-for-service payment model, that is um, payment is made on a per-service basis without regard to efficiency, to models that do attempt to reward more efficient care, more cost-sensitive care. Um, and, and it is always interesting to see how those um, are received by the provider community. Um, it is not not always well-received, um, but we have seen more and more of those models being implemented um, more of them are being implemented in uh at least semi non voluntary basis for some providers and i certainly do think that that will continue
0: but of course there's the same dilemma there i mean if you go to a you know a per capita payment per, per patient you get a certain amount uh it, you may make it, it may provide enough resources uh, but on the other hand does that create disincentives to hold down on care that should be given that otherwise might be given if there were reimbursement on a, on a traditional model. So through all of this, uh, it's, it, it, and you've done this so skillfully, is not just to point out what the issues are, uh, but to point out that in all the issues there are genuine dilemmas. Uh, there are no easy answers, uh, and we can state things we want, and often the things we want uh, are in conflict with, you, with each other. Once again, we want to thank Emily Cook for joining us. This is such an important subject. Uh, the, we've mentioned the, the overall part of the GDP, but the McDermott will practice with over 100 lawyers, including specialists within the area. And this is something that affects everyone's life. It's something that is going through constant change. I don't think we can mention too often Oftentimes, within a day on the website regulatory change and how important it is to have lawyers demonstrate the kind of skill and energy and values that Emily Cook brings to this. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor to have you with us.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Howard. This has really been an enjoyable conversation. I, I hope that your listeners enjoy learning more about what's been happening with healthcare during the pandemic.